you come into law school, which is this completely new institution, um, where there's a real new expectation for many people around professionalism and uh, efficacy and making sure that you put your best foot forward. But what people don't often talk about is the fact that there's a real learning curve associated with it, and um, not everyone understands how to do it right away. Um, it can really feel like you're the only one that's going through that. Some of the things that I've seen that have, I think, had a positive impact, making sure that it's not just systematic things in place, but that things like stigma and having conversations about like it being okay to not be okay all the time are really important. Seeing a major partner at a law firm just be a comfortable one, just talking about that, acknowledging that, that people have demands of their personal life, which make it hard to get their job done, but that they were able within their firm to come forward and to ask for help and support and rely on the people around them just is something that I'm looking for personally when I'm looking at a place that I want to begin my legal career is like, look, where's somewhere I can feel comfortable reaching out and talking to people? That's Alex Evangelista, Amanda Hawkins, and David Ryback, law students that were part of a 2017 panel discussion. They were responding to recent research indicating that lawyers are at a higher risk for anxiety, substance abuse, and depression than those in the general population. This susceptibility begins in law school and eventually has an impact on society by affecting people who rely on lawyers to manage their everyday legal problems. Today, we'll hear from three advocates about how legal professional culture is finding new ways to address mental health and its connection to access to justice. We found rather unfortunate levels of distress, uh, both mental health distress and problematic drinking um, among practicing attorneys. And that's a point that I will sort of emphasize is that our data sample was uh, lawyers who are licensed and currently practicing law, uh, we found that approximately 21, well, between 21 and 36 percent of licensed currently practicing attorneys in the United States qualify as problem drinkers um, using a World Health Organization drinking assessment. And we found that 28 percent are struggling with moderate, severe, or extremely severe levels of depression. There are also significant levels of chronic anxiety and stress, not the type of anxiety and stress that can be sort of situational or perhaps motivational, but we really are talking more about the, the chronic type, which can be impairing. So overall, I'll say that we found that the behavioral health landscape in the legal profession is in need of repair. Patrick Krill, founder and principal of Krill Strategies, is an authority on addiction, mental health, and well-being issues within the legal profession. He led the first and only National American study on lawyer addiction and mental health concerns. The study underpinned the creation of a national task force on lawyer well-being in 2016. We spoke to Patrick about the relationship between legal professional culture and mental health outcomes. What the data confirmed was what we were seeing, that they are, as a group, very reluctant to admit there's a problem and to seek help for that problem. And largely that is due to fears out of how such an admission or such help seeking might affect their career and their perception among their peers. We found that the attorneys who are struggling the most in 2016, which is when the study was published, are younger attorneys in the first 10 years of practice. 
So prior to this study, the understanding had been that the longer you are in the legal profession, the more likely you are to develop a drinking problem and the more likely you are to be depressed. And our study showed in rather convincing fashion that in fact the opposite of that is true. And it is now younger attorneys who are experiencing the highest level of distress. What I hear constantly um, from younger attorneys is that they find the model to be um, really burdensome on their well-being. And when I say the model, I mean the traditional sort of billable hour model um, and the demands that go along with that and sort of the, the demand of being accessible 24-7 and you know just the high level of stress that is associated with being, for example, an associate in a firm. Um, many of them just don't see that as sustainable either for themselves or for the profession as a whole. But when you are in a room talking with partners who are on the other side of that and they've come through that process and they are um, a little bit more grounded in sort of the old school, if you will, to use a cliche, the old school thinking around these issues, you know, they view that as that's the way it's always been. That's the way that this law firm was built. That's kind of how the profession functions. People have to work really hard. And, you know, sometimes they may see younger attorneys as um, maybe a little bit whiny and, you know, maybe a little bit needy. Um, so there, there really is a divergence in um, views around this stuff. We wanted to know if a cultural shift was occurring. Is there a tension between generations of lawyers and their attitudes towards mental health problems? We spoke with Yukimi Henry, Manager of Academic, Personal, Counseling and Wellness at University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. There's going to be um, going to have to be an emphasis on translation, translation between the experiences of that generation and you know and an older generation, um, because the experiences out of which they're coming from you know economically and socially are are quite radically different, and so the expectations for what a work environment look like are also radically different. The degree to which um, people would sort of jokingly, yet but still with some measure of genuine positive affirmation, talk about how little time they spent on themselves um, was really was the badge of, of what a good lawyer you were and how much you cared. And, you know, and I think that that, as false as that narrative is, I think it really has sort of infiltrated the, the, the kind of way in which we sort of think about what it means to be a productive, healthy professional, you know, a producer. Um, you know, a rainmaker, all of those kinds of ideas, um, you know, where students and young lawyers would talk about how many hours they had billed or how many days they had, you know, consistently been in the office without a break. Um, and this was a sign of somebody who was, was really hardworking and, you know, was a really good student or, you know, young associate. Um, and, you know, the, it, it's just, it's really based on an, a, a fallacious foundation. So there are some structural issues, um, you know, within the legal profession that I think, you know, we, we could afford to be very, very thoughtful about um, in terms of making constructive change, in addition to sort of being more explicit about what kinds of damaging and um, false narratives continue to kind of exist on a more um, subconscious level. It's really quite bizarre that the legal profession has hung on to it because it uh, rewards inefficiency. 
what you're being told is spend as much time as you can doing this task and that's where the greatest monetary reward will come from as opposed to produce the best product in the shortest amount of time you can and then go home and have dinner with your family um, and that's what we will reward. Our profession I would argue is morphing out of the concept of profession more and more into the concept of business. So the idea of being productive, productivity as a as an economic indicator is considered a positive economic indicator. It suggests people are being very efficient, getting a lot of work done. In my observation, it means less people doing more work because office space is expensive and real estate is expensive and overhead is expensive and keeping up staff is expensive and you have to charge enough to clients but you can't charge too much because there's lots of competition out there. So if you want to keep your your client base coming in, you're going to have to keep your, your rates reasonable, but your expenses are going up, so you're going to have to give your associates more work and work them a little later and work them a little harder. So these are opposing forces. You've got a generation coming up that is, understands that it's important not to burn yourself out and a profession that has enormous pressures and growing pressures that it hasn't had to this level. That's Doran Gold a staff clinician at Homewood Health. Homewood provides confidential, no-cost counseling to lawyers, law students, paralegals, and their family members. These services are accessible through the Member Assistance Program, or MAP, which is funded by the Law Society of Ontario. We asked Doran for his perspective. The shift is kind of like turning an oil tanker. It's very large and it turns very slowly. So while I do see uh, leaders in firms uh, changing policies and uh, adjusting firm behavior, I don't see it nearly as quickly as it needs to be. While I do see young people um, being having much more uh, language and understanding around mental health and, uh, and self-care and all of those things, I also see them doing the same things that my generation did and the generations before me did. For instance, in a law firm environment, if you are a first-year associate in a law firm, it's a nice idea to have a boundary, but if the firm expects you to just take whatever work they give you, articling students, first, second, third-year associates don't have a lot of leverage. They don't have a lot of bargaining power. They're, they're, they're trying to make it. And they are often thinking, these are the growing pains of the profession, much like my generation thought so. So they, they go through those early years of practice taking whatever's thrown at them without saying boo, because they don't want anyone to think that they can't handle it. And they don't want anyone to think that, um, that they would ever say no to anything. And they need to say no to some things, but they don't feel empowered to. So while I think they are aware of the need, more of them are, and I think that some of them are inclined to actually make the kind of choices necessary to maintain a healthy life. It's turning very slowly. So what is the impact on society when lawyers aren't well? Here's Doran and Patrick. We need lawyers being professional. We need lawyers who aren't stressed to the point of fraying at the edges, leaving certain stones unturned, um, coming unprepared to court. Beyond that, we need lawyers who aren't addicted who aren't doing murder trials while under the influence of alcohol. There's a very clear access to justice problem because that's a person's liberty that's at stake. That happens. And the system itself is not designed to perfectly police it. 
A judge is not a diagnostician. So a judge or even opposing counsel, a crown, cannot look at a criminal defense counsel and say that person is altered. They may just have had a bad night's sleep. They may just be that way. So they will go on. And a person may therefore may not be served well because of it. That's why organizations like ours exist, the MAP. We say, before you get to the point where your efficacy as a professional is impacted, call for help. Every human being has problems at some point or another. Everyone needs help at one point or another. These are things that, if addressed, are very much retrievable and correctable, and people can get back to very high functioning. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a character flaw. It is part of the human condition. And But if one feels the pressure not to divulge it, if one feels the pressure not to... Um, uh, not to deal with it, not to let anyone else know, uh, not to have their reputation be smirched by the knowledge that they have an addiction, for instance. They'll hide it. And the more they hide it, the deeper they'll get into it and the more it'll affect their their effectiveness, their professionalism, their competence. Uh, that can have real ramifications for access to justice. I think that it's important for lawyers to, to really appreciate and take seriously the important role that they play and can play in the proper functioning of society, the government, um, the economy. And, you know, if things don't change, if lawyers continue to experience increasing levels of depression, anxiety, stress, substance abuse, um, you know, they're, they're just, the profession's going to continue to buckle under that weight. And, you know, I, I can't predict what that looks like five to 10 to 20 years from now. But I can say it's not good. It's not where we want to be. We're going to be attracting to the profession less talented, less dedicated people who just not going to be able to sort of hold the profession up to the standards that it has set for itself. Um, because if it's known as a, is a sort of miserable experience to be a lawyer or that people are really anticipating that you should only go into that if you're willing to experience a mental health disorder or be at a heightened risk for substance abuse. You know, it's just not, it's, the short answer is it doesn't feel sustainable to me. In 2016, the Law Society of Ontario launched a Mental Health Strategy Implementation Task Force. Their focus is on increasing awareness of current resources, such as MAP and identifying areas where the Law Society as the regulator can make a difference. This involves considering how to support early identification and treatment while continuing to protect the public. Responses like the task force indicate that when it comes to lawyer mental health, a significant shift in attitudes and awareness about mental health challenges is occurring. When lawyers struggle, their firms and clients suffer as well. Here's Yukimi on the critical need for continued and deeper responses. I think the university is acutely aware of their role within um, sort of a broader mental health framework um, in terms of sort of civil society responses. And I think unfortunately the university does understand that they're, they are um, often the mental health resource that, um, that young adults are first able to actually access because there is such a deficit in terms of the, the broader resources available in the community because there aren't enough publicly funded um, services available um, outside of 
these educational institutions. So the university is being placed in a, in, a, in a very difficult position of providing services for a population that may have been previously untreated but who have very acute needs. Um, and the university is doing their absolute best to respond to that, um, recognizing that you know their ultimate goal is is to successfully um, you know support students through an educational process. And in order to do that, they need to have their mental health and, and their mental well-being attended to. Um, so I think that is something the university is very aware of and is doing their best within the resources available to them to uh, to, to respond. Um, and I think what that's doing, as I say, is is we're we're bringing into the workplace people who have better health. And we're also, I think, um, bringing into the, into the profession people who have a more sophisticated sense of this as a requirement in order to be an effective professional. I mean, I want to, I want to say, well, what's at stake is we, you know, we compromise ourselves as a profession, but I, I don't think that's the case. The reality is, is, you know, we live in such a stratified society and the amount of power, you know, economic, social, political that is held by people in the profession and the profession as a whole is so significant that I don't think the profession collapses if they don't learn to be more responsive. I don't think that happens, um, but I do think we compromise our, our, our relevance. Um, you know, the fact is, you know, as social change takes place, we have the capacity as a, as a profession to be a leaders for that social change. Um, and if there isn't a, a shift in the way that the profession understands their role within a broader social framework, um, they do stand to, I think, um, sacrifice that leadership potential. Um, will they still retain, you know, much of the privilege that, you know, has been generated over, you know, over generations? Yes, I think that will happen. But I do think that that capacity gets compromised, and I think that would be a shame. Our student panel at the top of the program demonstrated that the next generation of lawyers is sensitive to well-being issues. They see healthy lawyers as healthy problem solvers. As they enter the profession, we see the critical importance of continued candid conversations about the professional and access to justice elements of lawyer mental health. Architects of Justice is created and produced by Jane Kim and me, Sabrina Dellen. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please leave us a review. This podcast is supported by the Law Society of Ontario and the Law Foundation of Ontario. Architects of Justice is an initiative of TAG, the Action Group on Access to Justice. For resources and more information, visit theactiongroup.ca. Thanks to Doran Gold, Yukimi Henry, and Patrick Krill. <laughs>